You do not know about him? Was he checked? Of course. By the officials at the air base. Why, he's a captain in the United States Marines. Well, we always accept the obvious. Oh, you have a distrustful character. I have no character. <laughs> I assume one. Perhaps of he. I will not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. My life is my own. They're frequently dumb, but they're sometimes astute. They're always emphatic on a degree absolute. They're breaking the prisoner right down to the root. That whole TV show on a degree absolute. If you like lava lamps and weather balloons and whack-ass inflections from Patrick McCoon, Chris and Glenn made a podcast especially for you. It's no degree partial, it's a degree absolute. absolute. Glenn. Chris. Even though you are a seasoned, grizzled, some would say jaded podcasting professional with more than a decade of experience, it's possible you might be feeling just a little bit nervous today, given that we have with us a guest whom we both revere. Mm -hmm. So before we get rolling, I just want to reiterate what I've been telling you all week. Just continue to be your same big, beguiling, sweet, candid, talkative self. (laughs) Tell him nothing. Oh, I got the Borg Nine. I, I, it could be worse. I could. <laughs> I got the Borg. <laughs> I got the Borg Nine. Resistance is futile to the Borg Nine, Glenn. Kind of was hoping to be to be compared to Jim Brown, as I am <laughs> often hope to be compared to Jim Brown. But no, I'll take Borg Nine. I'll take Ernie. <sighs> I got the Borg Nine so bad I couldn't get out of bed today. <laughs> I got the Borg Seven of Nine. Definitely the the worst, most tragic, most lamentable thing that has happened during this this pandemic. That we are just uh, hopefully clawing our way out of is the final disappearance perhaps of the summer blockbuster i miss them i miss them i and even though this is a film ice station zebra the subject of today's discussion that that came out in october since it predates the, the official summer movie movement with jaws and and star wars a decade later it still feels like that kind of thing tries to punch above its weight in terms of spectacle we can talk about whether it succeeds, mm. but um, so oh, that's we that's will. what we're doing here. I I, <laughs> I want to substitute summer blockbuster. Looks the same, tastes the same. With Top Gun having moved once again to November, we're not really going to get it. And I know I know Matt is with me. I know he is with me, and not really accepting the Fast and Furious franchise as a as a genuine contender. This is an unpopular position, but I but I stand by it. I I can only say I am with you because I haven't seen a single one of those films, <laughs> and I think maybe this Christmas my wife and I always do like a franchise watch that may be coming up, so I'll have oh to boy. let you know. But until then, yes, I'm with you. All right, two things. One, I'm I'm with Matt because I haven't seen a single one, and first couple times was carelessness, and then it became my identity, and I've never seeing yeah. the festivals. <laughs> yeah. Now I, it's it's something I cling to. But Chris, would you please introduce our guest and bring him in? All right. You know what? Yeah, I'm sorry. I've spoken too soon. No, you haven't. No, the guest should speak first. No. I'll this is what we you love. Guys do your thing, and it's we'll pretend I'm not here yet. Don't pretend you're not here. You know what? The all, all of our other uh, preamble that that you consider so tiresome, so uh, hackneyed, Glenn. The it'll benefit from from our guest's participation. Yes. So I will. Uh, I'll introduce him first. I don't usually like to pull back the curtain like this because you and I are both insecure enough that the facade of professionalism is something <laughs> we usually try to preserve on this show. But we did recently identify a staffing deficiency 
in our ranks. Specifically, we needed to recruit someone who could cover for us in the humor department, so they need to be a world-class improvisational comic, yep. but who's also a musician and songwriter, an illustrator, an artisan, a warm and curious interviewer, and a man whose credentials as a podcaster are beyond question. Someone with the terrifying sexual imagination of H.R. Giger, <laughs> the cruelly lacerating prose lens of Ian Fleming. Most important, we wanted to pay this impossibly talented and generous Renaissance person nothing. Absolutely nothing. Yeah, that would be that. So we had no choice but to pick up the red phone and call. <laughs> Matt Gorley, Matt Gorley from Super Ego, Matt Gorley from I Was There Too, from James Bonding, from With Gorley and Rust, from the band Townland. Follow Townland the band on Instagram. And of course, from Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend, which I, I gather is about some television personality. Welcome. Welcome. Matt Gorley. Oh, thank you guys for having me. That that was too much for me because I think, you know, I contacted you guys at least on Twitter saying how much I like the podcast, and that was a secret hope for an invitation. And this is from a guy who's I am burnt out on podcasts, especially some guest spots here and there. But sure. I just felt like you guys have created such well, it's one of those one way friendships from a podcast where I know you both <laughs> casually, but I was thinking like, wait, my friends are talking to me and I don't get to talk to them. And, and thank oh. God here I am because I've really been loving the podcast. And like I said before, this is the first thing that ever got me to finish the entire series of The Prisoner. I've tried multiple <laughs> times in my life and I never made it. And you guys did this for me. You're, you're like my Peloton coaches <laughs> Wow, dry 60s spy uh, series. That's so sweet of you to say, especially we, we know that you have paid a heavy personal cost for your podcasting profligacy, Matt. I, I listened wow. yesterday. Could you yeah. say that as Patrick McGoon, please? <laughs> podcasting profligacy. It's, it's, it's hard to hit uh, a Y very hard. That's the problem. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. I listened yesterday to the Barack Obama episode of Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend, where he, he explained that neither you nor Sono were... Able yeah, to accompany him shit. here to D.C. because you associate with some uh, some sketchy podcast folks. So yeah. uh, I'm sorry, but uh, your loss is our gain, Matt. And my gain, because I don't I don't <laughs> even truthfully, I don't even know who Barack Obama is. Mm -hmm. But what I do know <laughs> is a degree. Absolutely. <laughs> Matt, do you remember what it was that made you bail? Um, do you, was it a specific episode or was it just you get you hit like living in harmony and you kind of or you, you kind of lose your way. Oh. What, do you remember why? Are you assuming that everyone shares your disdain for Westerns, Glenn? I'm, I'm, I'm not. I'm not. But, uh, okay. All right. As far as I can remember, and I've done this with a few shows, it was that thing where I was, I'm a, I'm a real completist, so mm -hmm. I hate to just leave dangling threads like that, but I found the space between episodes got exponentially larger to the point where the next one I would watch would be after I was dead. So it just wasn't going to happen. In some ways, I'm still waiting to watch that next episode, but the gap was too long. Uh, but you made it through. You powered through now. Yeah, and you know what it was is this thing in quarantine where I've been like going to bed so early, so I find myself waking up at sometimes like 4, 4.30 mm -hmm. in the morning. Mm -hmm. And the first thing I did was watch that amazing show that i had found for the first time called the sandbaggers that late 70s british spy show that's really just guys at desks for an hour <laughs> and i 
ate that up. And then right when that was finishing, your podcast came out and I thought, perfect, here's my next 4 a.m. show, The Prisoner, and it was, <laughs> but I would fall asleep almost every episode and then have to continue it later in the day. Uh-huh. I know this about you, Matt, and I, I, in a way I'm relieved about what you said about, about one-way friendships because I, I knew that you had, had changed your, your sleep cycle to farmer's hours because I've heard you mention it on, on uh-huh. a few shows. Uh-huh. Yeah, farmer to Magoon to it's like spy hours basically. <laughs> Keeps yeah. you honest that uh, you know Thomas Jefferson thought that that agricultural lifestyle was good for the soul, but he owned slaves. So yeah, so <laughs> contradiction in terms. Glenn, point of order: there are rules here. According to Hoyle, mm-hmm. we do have to do the whole the whole preamble before we get too deep into this dissection of okay. Station Zebra. Right. In 1966, Patrick McGowan, star of the long-running TV spy series Danger Man, resigned at the height of that show's popularity to create a new series about a spy who resigns from government service and wakes up in a mysterious and inescapable village where many, but not all residents, mm-hmm. are referred to only by a number, surreal and provocative, silly and pretentious, ahead of its time, and innately and unambiguously and lavid lampedly of its time. That short-lived, long-tailed series was called The Prisoner. In 1967, Patrick McGowan, star of the not-yet-running series The Prisoner, stepped away from the production of that show's severely truncated second season to go make a movie in Los Angeles. The title of that film Mm. was Ice Station Zebra. We welcome you now to the private personal by hand punch card driven podcast where we take this uh, pretty classifiable and and I'm gonna say fairly forgettable. Yep. (laughs) 1968 Cinerama spectacle and we push it. Oh boy. Like Chuck Yeager in a stationery store. I've been waiting for this. Sure, sure. (laughs) He goes straight to the envelope section, Glenn. Oh, he goes straight to the envelope section because he pushes. <laughs> okay. okay, jeez. Yeah. Six out of uh-huh. six because I'm an idiot. Okay, good. Uh-huh. Uh, we stamp it like a love letter on its way from Key West, Florida to Prudho Bay, Alaska for only, I mean, if it's going to be 58 cents now, how can you still not consider that a bargain, Glenn? Okay. I mean. We, we've established that confusion rates a six, so that's six out of Louis six. Louis DeJoy sucks, but I will, I will always stick up for the United States Postal Service. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Hmm. I don't know which one to do here. But oh, I'm, you've but... got, you've got like multiple t- timelines. <laughs> <laughs> so we're gonna fork in the multiple universe right now. Oh no! Oh my god! Yes, it's the Degree Absolute Podcast Multiverse. I want to tell you and also tell Glenn, Matt, that that some of these have been chosen explicitly because you're here to protect me. There we go. Okay, I'll do what I can. We file it like that lonely warehouse clerk. And the last shot of Raiders of the Lost Ark. I like okay, it. Okay, okay, yeah. That's definitely a six out of six. Yeah. <clears throat> we index it like Harrison Ford before his acting career took off. Uh, help me out here. Matt, help me out. Yeah. What's, what's, yeah, he was, uh, he was famously a... a carpenter, Glenn. Yeah. Index. Yeah. In before he was in movies, desks? he was in decks. Oh, in decks. Okay. Like uh, he was building decks? Oh right, yeah, yeah. All okay. right, I can't, I, I can't defend that one, Chris. I'm gonna yeah, have to, I'm, I'm gonna have to le- unleash Glenn on you. I'm right gonna, now. I'm gonna. Get, I, I had to work for it. It's a little sweaty. Carpentry is sweaty work, Glenn. It's not like <laughs> podcasting. It's a four to six. Four to six for me, dog. Okay, you're safe. All right, I, I hear a roar. I see what looks like sort of a weather balloon. There may be a somewhat visible fishing line attached to it, depending on what <laughs> angle I look at it from. All right, we brief it. Like the inexperienced Lieutenant Gorman addressing a squad of skeptical and frankly undisciplined colonial marines in the dropship bay of the Sulaco prior to their incursion on the colony on LV-426. Sustained. Yeah, six out of six. Yeah, that's what I meant. Because those Lion in Winter references, they just, yep. they're, they're piling oh, up. We Lion debrief it. God, I love it. 
<laughs> You're welcome back anytime, Matt. We debrief it like Deputy Chief of Police Dwayne T. Robinson trying to act like he was the no-nonsense problem solver who rescued the Nakatomi hostages. Wow. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's yeah, five out of six. I don't know. Yeah, yeah I'll allow it. Approved. <laughs> Stamped. Good. <laughs> Do you have a stamp that says approved? I stamped and indexed it. Outstanding. We number it like the Slazenger 7 that Hawker swapped in for Goldfigger's Slazenger 1 on the 18th fairway of the Stoke Park Country Club in Buckinghamshire. But it's your honor, sir. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> All right. Just because uh, of the participation, that's a six out of six. Yeah, I, I want you to know, Matt, that among all podcasters, you are first in my penfold heart. Oh, and you, and, and you, I. And <laughs> we're going to talk McGoons, we're going to talk MacGuffins. Our inquiry into this not especially perplexing film is not of a degree A. It's not of a degree M. Mm. It's of a iced day. Yeah, okay. I, I, I didn't really think about how to make the intro. No, work. but it's it, it writes itself. What is it's, it, Glenn? It's, a, it's a, of a degree absolute zero. See what I did there? Zebra! Yes. Oh, good. Okay, yeah. nice. Yeah. Wow. Um, All right. So, Chris, point of order here. For these special episodes, I was imagining that the run-up, we would try to adapt uh, the, the intro, the Q&A, I know. to the movie itself. But I like... I like preserving. Uh-huh. This is something you, you learn in podcasting school. You like preserving a certain sort of um, consistency. Mm-hmm. So I'm all yep. for this. I'm all for, for your choice to keep going along this doomed, <sighs> circuitous path that you have engaged in. <laughs> yeah. It's an artfully done path to ultimate defeat. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a uh, one-way uh, ticket. Thank There's you. No, no one here gets out alive. I may be getting the quote slightly wrong, but I believe that the the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King said the moral arc of the tractor beam of this fully operational battle station bends towards... Um, Irrelevance. S- yes, <laughs> that's right. That's right. And the, Six out of six. The same cosmic force that he spoke of that brought Jim Brown, Ernest Borgnine, Rock Hudson, and Patty McGee together has now bound the three of us. Yeah, I- I bet that was one of a low force. I don't think it took much force. That was like, what are the four forces? There's the like weak nuclear and yeah, yeah. strong nuclear. That was the weak that nuclear. The weak that nuclear. just was, oh, happenstance. Here we are in the same room. Okay. So we brought you on to talk Ice Station Zebra. Can I? Uh, can I get your just your general impressions of the film first, Matt, and then we'll go to Chris. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I don't know how I'd never seen this film because I'm a huge fan of John Sturgis's other films. Mm-hmm. And I think every time when I'd sit down to watch a movie like this, I would just see Ernest Borgnine, Jim Brown, <laughs> Rock Hudson, and kind of go, it's a B movie. And I'm not, I really love B movies and stuff, but this one mm-hmm. always was like second or third place on the day of what I was going to watch. So right. it just kept getting bypassed. So when Chris, you suggested we watch this, this is just like another opportunity for me to just get some closure and um i don't even know i don't even know i don't think this movie's that great but it just put me in a movie like this and i'm good it's got an intermission the score just and and i knew you'd know how to pronounce it glenn (laughs) i ate it up and i don't even know if it was good i there's just certain things i can't tell if they're good because they're good for me you know Uh, right 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 yeah how about you guys? Oh, boy. Well, I had the uh, notion to bring in Matt here because I just I assumed this was the kind of film that you and your dad 
would have watched. It, it definitely seems like a dad movie. This right? is uh, it's my notes. My notes, dad movie, ultimate dad. Movie. I had never seen it either. Yeah. I only knew it as sort of an asterisk in the context of, of The Prisoner, of it being the, the movie that Patrick McGowan had uh, fucked off to L.A. to shoot in the middle of the much abbreviated second series or season. Really is a B movie in every sense because the cast that we have here, uh, which again, are Rock the Dwayne Hudson, Ernest Resistance's Feudal Borderline, <laughs> Jim, One Night in Miami Brown, and Patty, get out, McGee. There you go. Originally, this was going to be Gregory Peck, David Niven, Lawrence Harvey, George Seagal? Seagal okay, Seagal? see that? Seagal. Seagal. That makes way more sense. Right. I mean, because... <laughs> I mean, you're, especially just in John Sturge's history, because it wasn't Gregory Peck in Guns of Navarone? And Niven's like, in Navarone, I think. Niven. Niven's Sorry, Navarone. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. That puts it from B to at least B+. Plus. <laughs> and, James and I probably would have watched it sooner. Right, and oh, James yeah. Mason was attached at one point, too. But oh my that God. was the original script with uh, Patty Chayefsky that was rejected by the Navy. The Navy said this would portray us in an unflattering light. So that's what right. required an entirely new adaptation, an entirely new script. And Whoa. that's when everybody kind of had to fuck off because their schedules conflicted. And that's mm-hmm. when we get Rock Hudson. And that's when we get Patrick McGowan in, in the British British agent part. And I think he's the star of this film. I'm 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 biased. I'm biased. <laughs> I agree. But I Rock agree. Hudson is just sitting there, and Ernest Borgnine is basically, you know, Mikhail <laughs> or Mikhail Nishnikov, uh, I guess. And <laughs> yeah. but he is bringing so much character and life. And you know, I, I knew he was a star of the small screen. I just didn't imagine he would be able to expand out. Man, he is the reason to watch this. And as you guys are saying, this is the ultimate dad movie. This is—I I just kept waiting because it was, you know, opened up in Scotland. I, I thought, okay, well, somebody's going to mention their golf score at some point. And then, <sighs> if if cargo pants were a movie, if uh, if <laughs> if socks with sandals were a screenplay, if this film attained sentient life, it would ask you how your car is running and then hand you off to your mom. Wow, yeah. this is a dead movie. Classic. This dead is movie. a this movie is a Saturday lawn mow. Absolutely, with a glass of lemonade, <laughs> with an Arnold Palmer. You are three hundred feet below the surface of the North Atlantic, on board the American nuclear submarine Tigerfish Three. Your destination: a secret outpost at the top of the world, Ice Station Zebra. Take her up. Your orders get there before the Russians. On board, one of these men is a saboteur who is determined to stop you. Oh, I've already vouched for Mr. Vaslov. As for me, you can safely eliminate me. Why? Oh, you must. Why? Biological absurdity. Haven't you forgotten, Captain? I'm in charge of this operation. Those orders come to you from your chief of naval operations and direct to him from your president. So before we go any further, I suggest that you get me there, put another torpedo up the spout, blow a hole in the ice, and get me there! Ice Station Zebra. A race against time at the top of the world. Estimated time of arrival, nine minutes. Rock Hudson. Ernest Borgnine. Patrick McGowan. And Jim Brown. Time of arrival, two minutes. 
fighting two enemies, the one they can see and the one that they can't. Ice Station Zebra. His 1969 review of the film, because I'm remembering this is from the era when movies were not simultaneously released all across the country. They kind of rolled out, and this was a, a roadshow presentation that opened at the Cinerama Dome, which I hope will I hope will come back. I hope someone will, will buy it. It had a lot of very satisfying film-going experiences at what became the Arclight. But uh, whenever it got to Chicago and Ebert had a chance to give his response, he called it a movie so flat and conventional that its three moments of interest are an embarrassment. Wow. Yes. He a stupid dumb shits movie. on Rock Hudson. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> stupid dumb movie. Okay, he uh, praises Hudson. He says, "Who has a couple of quick exchanges with Patrick McGowan, who plays a James Bond type? The result of these lines and these exchanges is simply to underline what a wooden and emotionless actor Hudson is. We never, for a moment, care about him or believe him. McGowan, on the other hand, is a witty and strange actor who mm-hmm. <laughs> provides the film. <laughs> Boy, <he> nailed with it. <laughs> character interest. Yes." He also had a big problem with the fact that in the, the final act, when they're all standing outside in the, like their, their standoff with the, the Russian troops, no one's breath is visible. Mm. You know? yeah. So if we could get Jim Cameron and the Digital Domain visual effects team to MGM in 1967, I, I, I want to tell Roger that I think that's a petty objection. I don't feel like that's, that's worth an entire paragraph of a 500-word review. Yeah, because I don't think you can critique a film for cold breath not being there until the first film does it mm-hmm. you know right. like right. whether that was <laughs> social network or what was the one you just mentioned titanic I think. titanic yeah there you go so then from that point out <laughs> oh you're no you're you referring to, to, to jim cameron's the social network which mm. uh yes which i, which I, I love yeah. jeanette goldstein your your guest and i was there too was fantastic in the social network yeah. <laughs> right. so patty mcgee gets third billing here i would argue it should mm-hmm. be i mean okay rock hudson is rock hudson but like he, he has more lines and more to do than ernie borgnine uh, and yeah. it must be some kind of uh hollywood deal making thing I guess. I mean, was this he is... an Academy Award winner by that point? Wasn't he? Was Marty? Oh right, oh, I, I guess he right. is. Maybe that's it. Yeah. Right. I, think, I think you just nailed it. Yeah, I think that's what it is. And what do we think the lure for Patty McGee was here? I mean, I know this was the the first in a a multi film deal that he had with MGM. But for a guy who, like two years before this, is so fed up with being a secret agent on TV. Now I understand there's there's a difference between being a secret agent on British television and being a secret agent in Hollywood movies. So maybe he's willing to suck it up. I think you know, that's it. To, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, because okay. don't you feel okay. like, in his mind, when this is probably all happening, it was Gregory Peck and David Niven, or at least that class of actors. But that first scene between McGowan and Rock Hudson, there does, I feel like I'm seeing a look in McGowan's eye of like, I will crush you. Like very competitive <laughs> as an actor. But also maybe they had some kind of sexual chemistry. I don't know. Because I, I, I mean, I know Rock Hudson's, Rock Hudson's history, but... Bagoon's a complicated fellow, and yeah, I just yeah. I just feel like there's way more going on in this scene than what the scene requires. There's <laughs> way more going on in that scene than than Rock Hudson is bringing to it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one of the people that was lined up for this was Chuck Heston. Chuck Heston was also tapped to oh, be a wow. Captain Forrester, and he said he turned it down because he said there's no character here, and he is not wrong. It's one thing that I certainly uh, think of when I think of Charlton Heston in most of his most famous roles. <laughs> Right, it's the right. complexity I mean, yeah, of character. He, he can be pretty flat, except if he's yelling at an ape. But, uh, but, but honestly, yeah. I I think his richest and most nuanced performance might be playing Vargas, the Mexican detective in Touch of Evil. Yeah, he, he's problematic casting. Yes, 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 of course. But it's a good performance. Yeah. So when this film opens up, it is making a promise 
to its audience that this is going to be big time Oscar Beatty huge. This is going to be a huge film. I mean, these strings, these this score by yeah. Michel Legrand is beating its chest and saying, "Look, mm-hmm. we get you. This is a Saturday night. You and the misses are out." You've just come from a, a dinner at like a, a Italian restaurant that has the checker tablecloths and the Chianti bottles candles, and you're gonna come and see this movie. It's Cinerama. It's an event. You're gonna go home and you're gonna have passionless sex, and then you know the next morning you gotta mow the lawn. This is a dad movie, and this score by Legrand just key every time we see the damn sub. It's just that same that same music keeps returning. And Michel mm. Legrand did uh, the score for the Umbrellas of Schoberg. He wrote the Thomas oh. Crown Affair score. Uh, he wrote the song Windmills of Your Mind. Uh, oh, really? Got, got him his first Oscar. He he wrote wow. Papa, Can You Hear Me for Yentl. He wrote a lot of songs in Yentl. <laughs> so this is it's like, like Michelle Legrand, like go big or go home. He went Legrand. He went big. Yeah. 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 He, right. It's so nosebleedy because when, when you do get that big score sweeping in, at the same time you see the submarine effects, which are often, mm. I think, a real submarine, yep. or if not, really good effects. Yes. So it's so disparate from the rest of the movie, which is kind of cardboard and flat. And there's just <laughs> something about that that I love. <laughs> yes. I don't know what it's, it is. Again, it's making a promise. It's saying this movie isn't the movie you're actually going to end up seeing. But like this, this there's there's a big movie here. And the yeah. opening credits are all just satellite dish porn. It's just all these lingering, very sexy shots of the same yeah. satellite dish from different angles. And then we get the based on Alistair MacLean. Uh, several of his books have been adapted. It's directed, as you mentioned, Matt, by John Sturgis. No relation to Preston Sturgis, just same names. But this guy made classic films. Classic, not necessarily auteur films, but like classic films like Bad Day at Black Rock, Gunfight at the OK Corral, The Magnificent Seven, and... The Great Escape, which is a very fun, escape. and of these four, I would say the most stylized, like the most stylish, yeah. the one that has the biggest sort of moxie, kind of a like a little English on the ball, uh, as, opposed, as opposed to this one. Um, the goof <laughs> section of IMDb for this movie is just, oof, there are 68 of them, and uh, they're all sort of amateur <laughs> military historians complaining. I mean, you must know these people, Chris, because, you know, you work at uh, <laughs> Air and Space. Uh, yeah, and it's yeah. just, you know, complaints about, I don't know, ordnance and Navy men wearing the wrong colored shoes. It's just, oh, man. it's just, it goes on and on and on, as you imagine it would, I guess. Well, before anybody writes one of those up about my appearance on this podcast, I'm realizing I said John Sturgis directed Guns of Navarone, but I was thinking Al- Alistair McLean wrote the, the novelist. novelist. Right, Alistair right, right. Yeah, McLean. Sorry, so no, just no, no, don't no. write that up. I, since we're we're talking about the the novelist who who gave us the source material, I do have a, a note here that that uh, may perhaps explain McGowan's um, participation in what was initially the the Lawrence Harvey role. Um, This is from McLean's 1987 obituary in the Washington Post. His novels were notable for their lack of sex. I like girls, he said. I just don't write them well. Everyone knows that men and women make love, laddie. There's no need to show it. Aww. So, so he and uh, he and McGee were of were of one mind on on that question. Yeah, they they are of one <laughs> ace mind. Mind. Um, so the trivia section is also quite long. The most off-repeated, off-sided statistic, well, not statistic, but thing about this movie that anybody will tell you is that it was uh, Howard Hughes' favorite film. Uh, they <laughs> established this by saying that when uh, Howard Hughes owned a Las Vegas TV station in the eras before VHS, he would call and demand that they play this movie a lot, like over a hundred times it was on that, that, that uh, TV station schedule. Yep. 
Uh, Rock Hudson said it was his personal favorite of all the films he made, which is odd because he's just coming off of uh, Seconds, like two years before with John Frankenheimer's Seconds, which is a film that kind of put him on the map in terms of being, quote-unquote, a real actor. Before that, he had just been like Pillow Talk, just like the handsome guy. And that movie really uh, changed the way... Not necessarily studios, but certainly the public thought about him for a brief time. And, you know, also, <laughs> surprisingly, he thought this film was his favorite because he's famously had some home movies, uh, various pool parties that he used to throw back in the days of Hollywood that I'm sure he liked for different reasons. <laughs> oh my God, Glenn. <laughs> there is a... Uh, I found this in two different sources, right? So apparently 2001 kind of anchored all Cinerama theaters for most of 1968. It was this movie that kicked 2001 out of Cineramas because MGM was just like, I think they were seeing a, a low return of investment and they thought this would have the same kind of impact. It just didn't. It doesn't have the same kind of longevity wow. because the special effects just have nothing to compare to 2001. Yeah. Like Matt said, I mean, I think the sub stuff is a mix of uh, an actual submarine and a, and a miniature of the the tiger fish a miniature that apparently was reused in a, a number of films among them never say never again mm-hmm. um, the the non-canonical bond flick um, yeah but the sub stuff is good the jets at the end the migs are pretty bad but uh the, like initially the just the very opening of the film where you see the the satellite in orbit and then the capsule you see the shot of the canister Hitting the snow, and I'm thinking this is an unconvincing model of a spacecraft that's supposed to be about the size of the Apollo command module, something kind of big, and they just biffed it. It looks awful. And then a guy comes over and picks it up, and it's like (laughs) only the size of like a a box. So so I was like, okay, I guess it's not not as bad as I thought. Still somewhat bad. Or the satellite just looked like (laughs) Boba Fett's ship, Slave One, coming at you in space. Slave One. Yes. I mean, if we're starting at the top of this film, I just want to talk about that, um, the entreact and all that stuff and the overture <sighs> that do you think we'll ever see those again? And not in an ironic Tarantino way, but wouldn't that just be something to walk into a theater and you're just getting the score for a while and you yep. cozy? I would love that. I would snacks. love that. That is why I, I hate the streaming service thing where, uh, you know, when a movie ends and that you need to opt in to keep watching the credits and listening yeah. to the score oh, yeah. or else it'll yeah. just skip to the next thing in your queue hate that so much yeah i I want uh with equal passion movies need to have theme songs with lyrics (laughs) every movie wow i also want overtures to return (laughs) i station zebra you'll never see a deborah when on a sub listen up bub god i wish i could remember the melody to uh beck's deborah because i would do it very Uh. quick I think my friend Jeremy and I actually made up lyrics to Force 10 from Navarone, which is kind of like my Howard Hughes I Station Z rig. It was always on TV, but I wasn't calling it in. Because that score is so rollicking march, and it's like, Force 10 from Navarone. We're going to get these guys because we're Force 10 from Navarone. Prisoners in disguise. Force 10 from Navarone. But on that jaunty note, I was watching this movie with um, my girlfriend's mom, who has uh, similar cinematic tastes to mine and uh this 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 may be a a a 
hearing gaff worthy of of the famous in a well from your your casino royale uh, <laughs> son of james bonding but you know the when the the sonar guy uh in the sub keeps calling out like thin ice thin ice thin ice as they're trying to find a place to puncture through the the ice shelf uh my my girlfriend comes in <laughs> she's like why does that guy keep saying hey guys Hey <laughs> <laughs> Which kind of works if the sonar operator is like trying to reach someone on the surface. Hey guys. Hey guys. Hey. 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 Hurry up. We're dying. <laughs> hey guys. Hey guys. Hey guys. <laughs> All right. So after the. I'm Ensign up- Taylor and I'll be taking care of you today. <laughs> after uh, somebody picks up the capsule and somebody else watches him pick up the capsule, we cut to the town of. Holy Loch, Scotland, mm. where Rock Hudson is sitting in a bar in a trench coat. Um, he's drinking. He's smoking. He's a man's man. I think what this is trying to establish is that he's a man of the people. Like, he likes his drink. He likes his fags, as it were. And um, <laughs> he gets up. He gets a call at McCluskey's bar. Where everybody knows your name. Rock! <laughs> <laughs> He is Jim Faraday, and he walks from his Speaking. from the bar he's in through a different bar up into a meeting room where he meets the Admiral. He's kind of cheating on his bar to go over to McCluskey's, but he, he meets his boss, and the boss asks him, how much do you know about Ice Station Zebra? It is a British weather station that has been sucked in by a blizzard. There's been an explosion or a fire. Men are dying, but that's not the reason he's being sent up there to rescue them. That's just an excuse. Now, Lloyd Nolan is playing the Admiral here. This guy, this guy has a very, very, very long career. We say that a lot, but I never longer. I've never seen a longer IMDb page wow. than this guy. Uh, lots of B movies uh, in the '40s. Uh, lots of stuff. Lots of character work in the '30s. Yeah. He was uh, a lead in Peyton Place. He was in Airport and Earthquake. I remember him much later in his life, even after this, as the dad in Hannah and Her Sisters. Well, that's twenty years later. When I was a kid, he was in a lot of Polydent commercials. So. Again, <laughs> with Martha Ray, uh, I think it was like it would we alternate between him and Martha Ray. I think. Yeah. Wow, what a world! <laughs> I know, right? It's kind of again the Alpha and Omega. Uh, so he is being sent. He doesn't have all of his orders. Uh, his passenger will know more. There's just lots of walking as they go to their car. <laughs> some driving, lots of driving, and some flying. Entirely too much flying. When they get to the airport and there's that big sign that says BEA with an arrow, I believe, it just made me feel like I was in a police squad or an airport movie or airplane movie where B. Arthur should just be standing next to that sign. (laughs) Oh, man. If they could only have B. Arthur money, then maybe they could. (laughs) (laughs) So we find out that Rock... uh, whose name is Jim Faraday, is the captain of a sub uh, that is, as we speak, loading up a bunch of Arctic-trained Marines. Now, the Marines and uh, uh, the character uh, played by Jim Brown are not in the book. They are movie editions. But uh, that's neither here nor there, because this is what we're here for. This is why we're talking about this movie. Now, Patty McGee shows up in a Rolls Bentley? I'm not sure. Chauffeured in a Rolls. It's like that big heavy Rolls that Goldfinger mm. had odd job driving around in. He yeah. shows his ID to the guard, and I freeze framed. I wanted to see what that ID looked like. I wanted to see if yeah. that ID ended up in a filing cabinet someplace. He, <laughs> he, 
He's introduced as Mr. Jones. Uh, he's shown to his quarters, yeah. and he yes. is... David Jones. He would perform as David Bowie for David much of Jones, David Bowie, but, good uh, pull. He was still, uh, still David Jones in 68. I, how would you describe his persona here? He's very cagey. Is he imperious? Is he condescending? What would you... Where, where would you... What would you call this performance? Oh, but like Maguin is a tiramisu of imperious and <laughs> condescending. That's and true. Just, uh, I was just trying to figure out which one of those I could rhyme with. <laughs> <laughs> He's there on a mission. His mission is classified. It is very clear he works you know, for British Mr. Jones. It isn't every day that somebody as important as Admiral Garvey flies all the way up from London to Holy Lock to personally hand me a copy of somebody's orders. What are you up to? Isn't it there? It does say Mr. Jones is to be taken into your fullest confidence and will be extended every facility and all aid. That puts a great deal of responsibility on my shoulders. It's a stunning character reference too, don't you think? And it is signed by the Chief of Naval Operations. And you must be delighted to know what a trustworthy fellow I am. All right. Now, about your mission. Well, I wouldn't insult you by swearing you to secrecy or anything of that sort. I think the most expedient thing, since you have your orders, is to obey them. These scenes of dick measuring between Rock Hudson and, and Patty McGowan, this is the kind of thing I hate in movies and I just find really boring and toxic, but here it is so much fun, but it is one-sided fun. It is just McGowan having a lot of fun with inflection, the way we love him, the way he, you know. It is lightly confrontational, but it is passive-aggressive. And uh, at one point, McGowan asks if the door is soundproof. That will come back. Also, is he the only one who smokes aboard this submarine? Because that just seems yeah, a power it seems move. crazy. Uh, no, L- Lieutenant Walker asks uh, the captain, ask ask Commander Rock Hudson if if the men oh, can smoke right. down there, yes. which that just seems like a nightmare. Right. But uh, but Rock Hudson says, yeah, of course. Yeah, it's yeah. just <laughs> unless the, it's... the unless the no smoking light is yeah, on. Yeah, but this with the scene. This is what I was talking about <laughs> right. with the scene. Like Patrick yeah. McGowan, Rock Hudson isn't doing much, and you can't tell if that's out of indifference or just lack of dynamism or something but McGuin kind of feels to me like he has so much to prove at all times in his life that he's yeah. going to fight someone on his level even if they're not fighting him on that level you know what I mean yeah he'll do this later to Jim Brown the, pretty much the same vibe it's he's just acting people off the screen it is not generous it is not uh, you know it's not no. you're not making your co-star look good <laughs> You, no, are, you, you are. put it well when I was listening to your podcast and you talk about how crazy this is that this is a whole series and your main character isn't even likable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, he's fascinating, but he's not likable. He, he is, and he... I. How would you compare Jones to Six? It seems to me that, that Jones is a heightened version of Six because, I mean, like, he'll get angry. He'll pound a table. He'll... You know, almost break a tea set later on in this movie when he pounds the table. But I, I, I think there's maybe maybe I'm just reading into it. But I think he's trying to create a real character in Jones, and in Six he's playing with allegory. Maybe maybe that's what mm. I'm getting at. I don't know. And but, it feels like like Jones is proactive and Six is reactive. That's true. But boy, you're also mentioning that table pounding scene, and that was another one where McGowan hits it so hard, and then Rock Hudson answers back with just kind of letting his hand fall with gravity. 
to the table with a little cat bounce. You know, yeah. like, that was incredible. The soundstage could only take so much. But do you think McGowan in that moment is like, damn it, man, I gave you such a pound and this is how you answer back to me. Yep. Yeah. It just feels like, you know, he is representing a fading um, empire and Hudson is embodying a current empire mm. that doesn't have to try too hard. But yeah. uh, have, have we all seen? Do, do do we all know Marathon Man? Yeah, have we yeah. all seen that that movie? We go there. Yeah, the 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 famous thing with the Olivier and Dustin Hoffman. Oh yeah, where uh, we yeah where where uh, Hoffman is you know running in place or doing push ups or something, and uh, you know Olivier is like just try try acting, yes, my boy. Have you tried acting? Okay, so we learn that a Russian trawler is tracking them. They seem unsurprised by that. Uh, Sorry, wait. Do you think that McGowan came up to Rock Hudson and just said, just try overacting, my boy? (laughs) (laughs) Have you tried chewing the scenery? (laughs) One one clear connection we can make is that Jones and Six react the same way to being roused from... from, from, uh, Oh, that's coming. The same cat-like reflexes. One squirt, you're dead. Okay, so uh, Rock Hudson goes down to talk to the Marines. And this is smart, right? Because what this is doing is it's giving us what the submarine's like layout is. Mm-hmm. As he goes down through the entire run of the ship, down to them, where the Marines, who do yeah. look 12... Now, now I want you to yep get your get your terminology correct here, Glenn. We we've run into this okay. before on uh, the episode where Six commandeered a boat. So so he goes down to the we don't go to torpedoes. <laughs> Through the, and, yes, through the and different the barracks, rooms of the, the submarine barracks, the to what they call the back yes. of the... Yeah. <laughs> uh, later on, Lieutenant Walker goes to his quarters, which he's sharing with Jones. He wakes him. Jones attacks him first with fists and then with a gun. The noise attracts the captain, so we know the door is not, in fact, <laughs> soundproof because mm. Rock Hudson comes running in. And we can tell just by looking at it. Yeah, absolutely. It's paper thin. <laughs> it is. It is wafer thin. So they've been ordered to uh, a surface rendezvous. The captain doesn't know why, and he's making it clear that he doesn't like being kept in the dark. He's used to it, but he doesn't like it. Yep. He's Mr. kind of making it clear as a character, but not really as an actor. That's. I, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Jones reacts to this by being even more condescending, if that's possible. <laughs> Then they shift the lighting to red. Why did they shift the lighting to red? Is this the smoking light? I don't know. What does the red lighting signify? It's something about seeing what they're looking at with red goggles, right? So they could... Is, I, I thought it was related to the periscope. Like maybe there was a risk of like the, the periscope peering through the surface could be visible if they used regular light. I'm, I'm, I have not researched oh, this, I'm, right. but, but it seemed to be connected to when they rose the periscope. But a red light wouldn't, like a no. red light shining through a periscope? This must have been look. something they got think, right well, if I, there I, were no IMDB goofs about it. Not a well, one. But they have those, um, you know, those, those military issue flashlights, they have the red lens in front of them, I guess, because that light just doesn't travel the way it mm-hmm. does without the, the filter on it. So if you want to be able to look at your map or whatever without being, you know, making your position known from mm-hmm. far away. But why are they wearing red goggles at one point? Did you notice that? Did notice that. Don't know why. Did, isn't that they take off the red goggles and then they go to red light? Mm-hmm. So it seems to me like, you know, when you would look at like, um, oh, God, what was it? 
was it Transformers used to have a thing like you remember how the G.I. Joe's had a little file on the back of the card of the action yes. figure. Yes. Transformers yes. had a little thing. Yeah. And wasn't that the thing that you would put up a little like, you know, one half of a 3D glasses and you would see mm-hmm. a different line that wasn't visible? And it feels like are they looking at some kind of map? Maybe or are they just looking at Transformers boxes? Maybe they're looking at Transformers I think boxes. Maybe. Proto. These, <laughs> these are going to be big. I think this is like that great Give it 20 um, years. push in in, uh, yes, in, in Hunt for Red October, subsequent generation and, and I will say superior Definitely. submarine movie where the crew of the Red October are speaking Russian and then the camera yeah. zooms in on their lips and zooms out and they're speaking English just to signal to us we're not going to make you read subtitles for two hours I know a guy that was in that scene and I kept trying to get him for I was there too and I I I never heard back that would have been so great But maybe, yeah, maybe it's that. They just want us to know they're all they're all still seeing red, even though we're no longer yes, seeing Well, they're certainly I don't know. more than meets the eye. Okay, so they're meeting a Navy <laughs> helicopter who lowers a, it's just, I, he looks like Ernest Brognine from a distance because he's just <laughs> smiling. He's got that mug. Uh, he's just like, well, that's good. They're, they're picking up Ernest Brognine. Uh, and they also uh, drop off Captain Anders, played by Jim Brown, um, and he quickly becomes... Maybe too quickly. Uh, the object of Jones' suspicion, like uh, Jones, Patrick Patrick McGowan is not uh, picking up what uh, Captain Andrews is putting down. No. And then you, you get a line, and I wonder if this is a holdover from the Ch- uh, Chayefsky, um script, where Boris Ernest Borgnine says, "You have a distrustful character," and McGowan says, "I have no character. I assume one," which is like, okay, that's a little. Spy job description, yep. I suppose. Mm-hmm. That's not bad. Mm-hmm. Not a bad line. Yeah, there was a couple lines that sneak through, like the lines about uh, the German scientists, like, we stole it and yep. used our German scientists, and then yep. you took it and used your German scientist. I thought that was clever. That was fun. Havana, and then the, uh, the Russians put our camera made by our German scientists and your film made by your German scientists into their satellite made by their German scientists, and thus up it went, round and round, whizzing over the United States of America seven times a day. Photographing missile bases. Within 48 hours, they had all the pin-up pictures they'd ever dreamed of, and every missile base on the North American continent. So I think that's the best 40 seconds of dialogue in this movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I agree. Uh, Anders shares a meaningful look with the Chief Marine, um, which I interpreted entirely wrongly. <laughs> I, I wanted it to be one thing. It turned out to be that this Chief Marine knows that he's about to be uh, superseded by uh, Anders. We learned that they haven't gotten a word from Ice Station Zebra, not from Hallowell or from Goodwin. This will come up later. Anders is going to be taken over the control of the Marines. He is a hard ass. I made a point of it. You see, Captain, I've saved a lot of lives by teaching men to jump when I speak. All right. The young lieutenant's a familiar type, popular with the men. As for me, I measure an officer's weakness. By every man that likes him personally. He measures an officer's weakness by every man who likes him personally. <laughs> wow. Which is just, that's, a, that's an aggressive stance. Yep. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and you're basically dealing with that lieutenant who's like as likable as Robbie Benson. I mean, that guy cannot <laughs> yeah. look good in Jim Brown's eyes. That's right. He's, he's uh, <laughs> uh, uh, just a happy puppy. Fresh out of high school. Yeah, he's he's summoned into the, the commander's office. I'm not sure that office is the correct term there, so I'm setting myself up. But he, he doesn't salute Anders, but he tries to shake hands mm-hmm. with Anders. 
And then Anders says, Lieutenant, and he sort of straightens up, but still doesn't salute. So what's, what's yeah, going Yeah, that on? is weird, too, because typically in movies, your lieutenant is the, like, green, just out of officer school, but no combat experience, kind of martinet who does everything yeah. by the rules. 42 so drops, simulate. You think the, the captain is kind of like, hey, relax, man, we're cool here, you know? Yeah. But it's the other way right. around. No, but that shakedown inspection is going to be a bitch. Yes. Yeah. I, yeah. I can't uh, imagine the word bitch was around too much in 1968 in movies, right? Probably. <laughs> Lassie. <laughs> I can't think of an earlier example in a movie of using that word just to mean something that's difficult. Mm-hmm. That field stripping test has got to be so difficult, not because they're doing it with their eyes closed, but because people keep walking I know, between right? the aisles. <laughs> it's my elbow. My elbow. Yeah, what are you doing? Real, yeah, yeah, yeah. Real yeah. Uh, left field. <laughs> <laughs> Boris, the giant red herring, uh, explores the engines. He goes to see the torpedoes. He explores the barracks. And then the captain interrupts mm. him again. If if he had any presence, this could be a real scene. Like if he if like the appearance of Rock Hudson felt had any stakes in it, it would be different. But he's just kind of there. He takes him to look at the engines. Uh, there's this weird scene where they, he gets a look at the nuclear and the nuclear vessel. And uh, right. he just seems transfixed by it. Uh, yes, it's, it's the briefcase in Pulp Fiction. It totally is the briefcase in Pulp Fiction. Uh, that, that's, that's powering the submarine. Yeah, and when Rock Hudson kind of catches Ernest Borgnine down there, I know that as a film goer, I'm getting red herrings and who is it and all this stuff. But as captain of that submarine, I would be saying this is problematic. Yes, I don't care yes, who you absolutely. are. <laughs> I think we need to keep you <laughs> under watch. Absolutely. Ah. But he loves to walk. He must. Uh, he must walk to forestall the symptoms of how you say, the claustrophobia. The claustrophobia. Your your good American claustrophobia. <laughs> and he calls the nuclear engine some weird word that I should have written down. I, I can't remember it. It's not uh, benevolent. Is that what he says? It's something like that. Mm. Yes, no, I think he does say benevolent. Okay. And Hudson's so, like, yeah, it, yes, contained. When it's contained, when it's focused, when it's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yes. Uh, Do not taunt the nuclear reactor. Boris uh, talks a little trash about Anders, about how he doesn't like Anders, to Rock Hudson, so he's planting seeds. And Jones then meets Anders and is, of course, an affable right. dick to him about bullet transit time and denser air. <laughs> this guy. How many of the uh, the goofs on the IMDb page are about bullet deceleration? Uh, not a one, not a one. It's all... Oh, really? Not a one? Really? Okay, maybe that's... Uh... Chayefsky made it through again. <laughs> it's true. Okay, the person who did the second screenplay uh, after Chayefsky uh, is uh, Harry Julian Fink, more famous for writing Dirty Harry oh. with his wife, so... uh, Rita, after this. So I'm going to say maybe that uh, thing about the bullet deceleration. I was going to say, yeah, he's all about bullet transit times. They hit the ice wall. This is the hey guys, hey guys section. <laughs> uh, and the uh, the captain explains to the civilians and to us, this is a smart thing that movies do sometimes, what the hell's going on. He's very proud of his closed circuit TV. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they arrive. There's a lot of thick ice, pressure rigs, gradient. Hey guys. There's, they try to break through the ice once and fail, which is to establish that it isn't easy, which is good. There is real suspense in this part. Um, there's actual, like, no joke uh, suspense. Yeah. I do think this film loses it in the last act completely. I think it just kind of yeah. collapses. I but. didn't realize 
how much of a procedural the first part of this movie is. Like yeah, a slow, abs- slow moving procedural. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they try again. And no that dice. stuff is good. like whether it's space flight, whether it's uh, submarine. I mean, anything in a hostile environment like that. The the how to is pretty entrancing. It is. You know, even when you've got wooden actors. Yeah, I just watched Day of the Jackal the other day, and I hadn't yeah. seen that in a long time. And that is just a procedural on how to kill someone. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but I'm always fascinated by having this many men in a room who are all doing their jobs with this kind of shorthand. It, it, it's exactly what you're saying. It is mm-hmm. a procedural. It is it is how to and, you know, just what the guy is doing drawing the map thing and what that guy is hitting that one yeah. button that he hits and what that other guy is doing. It's... Um, Oh man! Anything with like a grease pencil yeah, and ruler yeah, yeah. on that. Yeah. That uh, what do you what do you, what do they call the vertical transparent navigation thing that they're driving? That I love thing. That. I love that. It's like an angle poise T square or something. <laughs> that. And a grease <laughs> yes, pencil. It's a grease just pencil. it's just uh, really gets me going. Yeah. I like when the sonar operator is calling out distances or something, and uh, Rock Hudson says, "Keep those reports coming, radar." And then he shuts up for a yep. millisecond, and he's like, "God I damn know. it! I said yep. keep those reports Act- coming." Acting, acting. <laughs> uh, we did eventually, of course, end up losing the grease pencil <laughs> cold war <laughs> with the Soviets. They decide to use a torpedo to blow a hole in the ice, and then we cut to the torpedo room, where a fresh-faced, blue-eyed, tow-headed lad is having a discussion about his upcoming marriage and whether or not he'll get leave. George Mills, ship's Tomcat. Ready-made family, bailed-in responsibilities. George, are you ready for that? Hey, layoff, will you? Just, hey, we got a trickle here. Check the drain. So the XO didn't give it to the old man. Drain open. Drain open. George? You know he did in a state of shock. And? And the old man okayed it in the same condition. He did? Yeah. Hey, that's great. The tube, George, the tube. And I think this 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 trope here of the fresh-faced, innocent kid goes back to war movies, right? It goes back to, like, 40s films, 30s films. Maybe Audie even. Murphy and everything, yeah. Exactly. I guess he figured I'd end up with one of those seagulls he saw me with. It. Boy, this is tight. Anyway, for the first time I know what I want, right? And I know her. The line out of his mouth right before he dies is, I finally know what I want, which is just... I know. (laughs) Like, he got total consciousness or something. It was kind of like some beautiful Zen moment. Yep. I wonder how tired this trope was at the time, or was it just getting started? Because... Uh, even in platoon this trope is in platoon yeah. which is 86 and cynical about vietnam and the soldier in the beginning gardener who's like the new guy with charlie sheen goes you seen a picture of my girl that <laughs> betty sue she's the one for me all right those that's like verbatim <laughs> don't ask me why i know that but and that's that that's crazy because like that was that was considered such a revolutionary I know. film in 86 and, he's and the it, first and it one was to in die. a lot of ways but the way yep. yeah yep. <laughs> so uh, by the way, Matt, I, I blame you for the fact that every time Captain Dale Die shows up for his like two scenes in every movie that I watch, uh, to the great annoyance of whoever's in the room, I go, "That's Dale Die." <laughs> you know, it'd be nice if he was one of the fresh-faced lieutenants or recruits, Marines in this. <laughs> Just the little guy back there. Actually, that's well, an M1 Garen, yeah. not an M1 carbine. You know, <laughs> get it right. Uh, so what's happened, of course, is that the torpedo tube uh, is open to the sea. They are taking on water, Jones. Patrick McJewin, I maybe he wrote this into the script. Maybe he said my, my character would go back and help, but he goes back to help. Uh, they managed to get the tube closed after a very long time, uh, but they are... Yes, s- this, the- this is not as good as the sub-sinking scene at the beginning of The Abyss. I mean, 20 years later, 
not really fair, perhaps, but that's all I could do. Probably because that's the first one of these scenes that I saw in a movie just because of the age that, that I was. That does feel... Oh, yeah. sorry, go ahead. No, you. I think you were going to finish on his thought, and then I was going to tangent back to something you said, so I would like to cede to you. Okay. Uh, well, it's not really. It's just that the IM, one piece of IMDb trivia is that McGowan fancied himself a very strong swimmer. He wanted to do this scene alone. They they put him in the scene with a person who was actually a, a very very good like Olympic swimmer at one point, who just happened to be an actor on the on the on the cast. Uh, McGowan, I guess, didn't really like that. They thought they were kind of looking over his shoulder, but it turned out he got his foot stuck and needed help. Needed the guy help to go to dive down and unhook his foot so that he would not die. <laughs> Well, also, what kind of like expert swimming do you need to do on a set that's just a? It didn't seem that crazy to me. <laughs> yeah, but this does feel this was... like how Steve McQueen forced that scene into The Great Escape about him escaping on a motorcycle. That John Sturgis is real prone to just some egotist coming up and going. Here's what I should do. You know, I ride motorcycles. <laughs> I swim. <laughs> Have you seen me swim? <laughs> I'm a very strong swimmer. <laughs> I'm an amphibian. <laughs> Boy, if he could, if he could have been in the shape of water, that movie would have won even more Oscars. That would have been. Would have been oh, they're still diving, taking on a lot of water. But uh, then the thing that turns it around is that she's slowing. She's slowing. She's slowing fast, which doesn't, you know, contradiction in terms. Uh, and they yeah. say that a couple times. They say they? that a couple times. Yeah. She starts coming up. A kid starts praying. I think he's actually reciting the act of contrition. Chris, can you can you? Check me on that. My God, so, I'm hardly sorry for having offended thee and I detest all my sins and thy just punishments as they have offended thee, my God, who is all good and deserving of all my love in 1966, Patrick McGowan. <laughs> <laughs> Do you yes, think McGowan yes, also right. forced that in? Very likely. <laughs> but what I happens... This, sorry. No, I have this no, no. fantasy I mean, of McGowan who goes to confession because he's a devout Catholic, right? Yep. But he confesses other yes. people's sins that he's like <laughs> been with that day like nothing's his fault he's just leo mccurn was insufficiently prepared for a false witness leo mccurn exhibited weakness <laughs> in his performance rank idolatry performance was subpar <laughs> <laughs> so we had one instance of somebody saying it'll be a bitch here rock hudson stops the kid from praying because we're all trying to think <laughs> yeah when actually what they're trying to do is stare at this the the dial there nobody's really trying to there's not much mm -hmm. thinking that you need to do yep. you're just kind of yeah there's just yep. no. waiting we're, we're trying, trying to wait, wait. be quiet we're you know when we had that little zoom hiccup a few minutes ago i was just uh, reciting hail mary's until the the computer there came back go. on and, uh, and it worked fine so and rock hudson uh, replies like that not to put too fine a point on it but then somebody when they come back and they're, they're rising again and everything seems to be hunky-dory except for the dead child in the torpedo room he somebody <laughs> says thank god and rock hudson says something effective okay you thank god i'll thank the people who made this ship and that way we'll both yes become. thank god Madison. and i'll thank the electric boat division that covers us either way attention all hands this is the captain we're on our way up everything is under control they're underlining the fact that rock is a rock. Jones yeah. gets a nice monologue. By the way, everybody in the torpedo room should be dead. That is ice cold Atlantic seawater, and they've been in it a long time. And, and it should, this is probably on the goofs page. They just put a blanket on them and give them some coffee. And that's like, nope. <laughs> it would be a little bit worse than that. He gets a nice monologue explaining how the tube was sabotaged. Again, this is a moment where I just want to kind of sit back and just listen to him talk. He's great. 
Yeah. He speaks... And also, you never know when you're going to need to scuttle a submarine. You could learn something. It cannot happen on board a submarine by accident. Is both ends of a torpedo tube open to the sea at the same time? You must connect the hydraulic manifold to the outside door mechanism so that the indicator reads shut when the door is actually open. The same sort of electrical cross on these two panels and the open position reads green when it should flash red. Then you plug up the inlet to the test cup with chewing gum, sealing wax, anything, just so that it shows a dribble. And then you open the tube and good night. When Guin just... He speaks like no other human mm-hmm. can or could. Or uh, it's it's crazy. Imagine though, like living with him, that would That's be the thing, though, right? I mean, it's so yeah. arch. It is so yeah. performative, and yet it seems like, oh yeah, this guy. I know this guy. This guy would be that guy. Uh, yeah. Jones suspects Captain Anders again, and you know, so that's two people who uh, suspect the black guy. <laughs> It's just two people on the ship. Yeah. Wait a second. I, w- I want to piggyback on, on Matt's thought there. Glenn, you, you love talking heads, but don't you feel like that's kind of the relationship maybe between David Byrne and Tina Weymouth and Chris <laughs> Frant? Like there's David Byrne and the other talking heads, and David Byrne seems very much like a Magoon to me. I don't know. I don't see a lot of anger. I don't see a lot of anger in David Byrne. He no? seems like the... Like he seems like a Zen poodle to me. He's like I, I like I compared to okay, like, but thirty five years ago true. when when the band was that's was true. happening. I mean, maybe. Did you guys watch the right. Maguin documentary about that guy that's trying to track him down and finally does? Do you know about that? Yes. Oh, in yes. my mind. Yeah. Yes. yes. Did you see that? That is. We're. I think we're gonna have to do a yeah, whole episode on that because that thing is fascinating. Because speaking about someone mellowing he does seem mellower but in some ways even more sinister because he's not telegraphing it he's you know absolute power emperor at that point right but then he has to start like directing his own entrance into the room where they're going to shoot the interview (laughs) oh my god and then having his daughter shoot his own substitute interview to to replace the one that the bbc guy Uh shot like how could you live a life that micromanaging yeah Oh man, I actually feel sympathy for him. You know? No, absolutely, absolutely. You you get a different side to him there, certainly, and it is one that is sort of an open wound. <laughs> it just yeah. feels like there's something yeah. there is. But we'll uh, never know, will we? Like, there's no, no biography that will tell us what what Magoon is Magooning from. No, you know? no, we're just gonna have to divine the answers from uh, his performance in Braveheart, which I know Glenn is looking forward to. Oh, oh. Never the seen trouble it. with Scotland. <laughs> Is it full of Scots? <laughs> and we're also going to do uh, Escape from Alcatraz, too. You've never seen Braveheart. Wow. Yeah. That's impressive. What? It's yeah. your identity. Oh. Yeah. Well, no, but... It's... You're losing your identity on this podcast. I know, in a big way. Glenn, you know what? It has a hell of a James Horner score. Yeah, it, is it a does. Great score. Yeah. But at least, you know, I'll lose some of my identity, but at least I'll get more Mel Gibson in my life. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's really the that's really the that's where the rubber meets the road there. All right, yeah. so Jones and the commander lock horns yet again. This is the table-pounding scene. Um, no T-sets were harmed in the making of this motion picture. They all survived. But, man, uh, you're right, Matt, that there is table-pounding and there is table... I was not even thumping. It's it's so Dusting. weird that they would keep... <laughs> just, they would keep it. They surface <laughs> finally. They break through the ice. They send up uh, three or four flares. They make contract with Zebra, but it is spotty. Intermission and to act. Mm. Uh, this is a weird place to end it, I suppose. But uh, to, I mean, to to break yeah. it. But I guess 
Well, I you're mean, breaking the ice, and I guess you're also going from sub to station, so oh, it does feel like... Very good point. And, and speaking of like dad movies, I, this, I watched this on a Sunday afternoon with an Aperol spritz. Perfect. And I, I mean, I just was in heaven. A daytime <laughs> movie to me, a daytime <laughs> slow-burning espionage movie. Wow. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So again, you've spoken recently, Matt, about how you've been revisiting a lot of our favorite films, uh, like Before the Sun Comes Up, and uh, how that can change the experience for you. But but I agree with you. This seems like a daytime. Yeah, right? and they and they day are. Shift, I'm not a dad, but they, this is the time of the day when I will watch a film in the afternoon where my wife is like, I I don't want to sit down and watch a movie because we often watch movies together, sure. and she's not going to be into these type of movies that much. So it really is this carved out section of just, well, dad gets down on the couch. It's it's <laughs> 3 p.m. The you can barely see the movie because the sun's reflecting in the TV. Yes, this is know? the problem. Yes, yeah. It's not as though anything I'm doing in during daylight hours is contributing to uh, the betterment of the species or anything. But I still feel guilty if I uh, like <laughs> before eight or nine p.m. Before if I if I put oh, a movie yeah. on. That's part of the fun is you feel like you're yeah. getting away with something. I watched Ad Astra mm, the other sure. day at, at uh, like 11 a.m., which I hadn't seen since I reviewed it. In, in the theater still loved it but that's that's a daddy a issues dad movie. astra yeah. movie yeah that's a yeah. dad <laughs> dads and daddy issues yeah now that i'm thinking of it um brad pitt does give a very hudson-esque performance in ad astra uh where he's you know the sort of the emotional arc of the movie is this emotionally unavailable closed off man learning to be more communicative and uh, available that's not to insult his performance it just contrasts very sharply with the one in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is set in the Ice Station Zebra era that won Pitt and Oscar that same year. Anyway, that movie is great. More people should see it. Yeah. Hello, Degree Absolutions. Clemic here. Ice Station Zebra is a big movie. It has an intermission, so... Our podcast about it should have an intermission, too. Just take these few seconds to enjoy the Michel Legrand score. Get yourself a refill on whatever you're drinking. Take a stretch break. And we'll be right back. All right, so as we come back, I want to point out another crew member uh, played by one Ron Masak. He plays uh, Zabrinsky, the comms guy. Again, this face, this face, as soon as I saw it, I was like, I know this guy. Long mm. career, character guy, lots of guest shots on, you know, Have Gun, Will Travel and whatever. Lots of uh, rock, he uh, recorded on the Rockford Files, I believe. But we know him best as the hapless sheriff of Cabot Cove on Murder, She Wrote. Wow. Like that guy with, a, with the lousiest job who is terrible at his job in uh on Mother she wrote he's also the voice you might you guys might be too young for this the also the voice of the vlasic pickle stork oh the groucho marx the groucho marx yeah that's that's actually him oh yeah Uh, um they set out a party with the civilians the commander a doctor and a bunch of marines someone this i don't know why this happens okay so someone falls down a hole in the ice this is just to kind of goose the suspense i guess takes takes two others with him they managed to get everybody out though even though from the way the ice is closing in on them they should not get these people out it's like it's there's 
I really thought they were going to sacrifice a Marine or two just to, just to raise and you the know, Yeah, you don't part. want someone to die, but you do want in your men on a mission movie, especially when they set out from the greater right. submarine, to start losing them one by one. That's right. that. That Force 10 from Navarone gives it to you. Good boy. You ought to try that out. It's good. It's real nice. <laughs> And I, I, I kept waiting for that. Uh, come on, what's the, the that famous? Uh, I'm forgetting the name. The famous movie scream. The, oh, the, the Wilhelm uh, scream. The Wilhelm scream. The Wilhelm yeah. scream. Yes, I was I was waiting for that as those two uh, two sections of Arctic shelf just closed in on. Uh, yeah. Is it possible in a, this in a wonderful film, park, this uh, dad film, does not have a Wilhelm scream in it? I don't think it does. I think it's too think so. sedate for that somehow. It's awfully yeah. gentle. Even even the poor kid who who gets it in the the torpedo bay uh, doesn't die that graphically no. yeah. or audibly uh the ice starts closing in on the sub so the sub decides to dive as they are <laughs> approaching the burned out remains of ice station zebra uh mcguin gets to say smell that bad rubber! <laughs> uh which i'm here for uh again this mu- this walk-up music is incredibly dramatic the score is just an unchained melody it's just going nuts um jones fires finds bodies he wakes up uh the survivor or two who says there was an explosion so there's this it's almost like an altman scene because rock hudson is trying to raise the sub and jones in the same scene as their dialogue overlaps is trying to find out where goodwin dr goodwin and hallowell are and we have to take a pause here uh let's talk about uh patrick mcguin's fur coat oh yeah this really had me thinking about the the Empire Strikes Back version of the Star Wars action figures, where you have to get the same character you already have, but in their arc. Right, gear. sure. I don't it's... know. Are you are you with me on this, Matt? We're we're of a similar oh, generation here, of course. Right? Yeah, uh, I mean that was a no brainer to me. Yeah. It wasn't like a, me... a duty to get them all. It was a privilege to get more than one <laughs> on Solo, especially in cold weather gear. I like an action hero. Yeah, fur lined parka. I want to say. It's Chinchilla. <laughs> I don't think it's uh, Mink. That feels right to me somehow, and I couldn't tell you why. Could I don't know. It, it be... does feel right. It's just got a, a not... like just about to fall off feeling. It's not Beaver. Could it be Beaver? I think Beaver would be like more greasy and kind of. It wouldn't be as fuzzy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think it would be more dense. Otter and Beaver's dense, but that. But didn't didn't that parka stop at his waist though? Like it did. That was not like a knee. Oh, it definitely feels like something that came from like Have Gun Will Travel, or they just pulled it from a studio (laughs) lot. That is definitely a Western, like Davy Crockett kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And McGowan is like. Can you imagine though, too? Because all the sub people, they have different colored things, and I don't even know if this is true, but I thought, oh, that makes sense. So they can tell each other who's who in the snow. That's cool. But Magoon isn't part of the submarine, so he'll have this thing. And Magoon went in and demanded his own costume choices, and this is what he came out with, I'm sure. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Yeah. And Rock Hudson's wearing like something that's uh, kind of, again, (laughs) it is reflective of their presence in this movie. You've got this thing that Magoon's wearing that you can't take your eye off of, and you've got this completely, you know, work-a-day Rock Hudson wardrobe. Um, So Jones goes looking around. He finds a frozen body. The uh, commander looks at him very suspiciously. He eventually, Jones and Boris, find the bodies they're looking for, which were shot before they were burned. Goodwin was one of theirs, was British intelligence, I think. And he shot Mm. them or was shot by them. This is where some of the details start to kind of 
bleed away and they kind of hit my frontal lobe and then <laughs> yep and they kind of yeah well even in the movie it's not clear because mcguin says he either shot him or the other right. guy shot him they don't know yeah right and then uh, patrick mcguin discovers a weather balloon you'd think they would make something more of this <laughs> he's he has a long history with weather balloons and it's not good but he seems completely unfazed by it <laughs> Uh, it was to be used to collect a payload with an air pickup thing. Then Rock Hudson's men, uh, including the Vlasic Pickle guy, uh, drop a device into the water to signal the sub. And they have Captain Andrews. Again, they're they're throwing red herrings at you. Um, he's looking shifty with a machine gun, like kind of lurking in the shadows as he's watching Jones. And then finally we get another reason for this film to exist, which is uh, Patrick McGowan explaining things to a dully, barely comprehending Rock Hudson. This is the scene where we find out that he's looking for a role of film. The film tries to make Rock Hudson's character smarter than he has seemed up to now by saying, oh, we know it's, he knows it's a role yeah. of film. It's from a Russian satellite that photographed every missile base on the North American continent, but it also photographed the Russian military bases. It's still somewhere at Zebra. Uh, he goes about to explain that the satellite was doing a equatorial orbit and then it went polar. Um, and somebody on the uh, goof section said that, that, that there's no way the um, vessel would have had that much fuel. That was a that's a very fuel intensive maneuver, and they could, there's no way that could have uh, happened. Okay. Um, and then this is this Get is the, just, uh, the staff of Smithsonian Air and Space. Uh, this is it. This, so this is him just explaining, finally explaining. Again, it should be that McGowan's character has developed a grudging respect for Rock Hudson's character, but it's just, it's, there's no seeds planted for that to happen. It's like, right. mm -hmm. this turn needs to be a turn. Because again, what McGowan keeps saying is, I will tell you everything you need to know only when you need to know it. There's no real reason for Rock Hudson to know this, except I guess the turn is that he says, I know, I know what you're up to, right? Was that kind of what you got from it? Yeah, I guess just to give him a little bit of <laughs> smarts. I I don't know. Yeah. I got a little confused with the whole MacGuffin thing and who has the detonator and why uh, does Rock Hudson have a second detonator? Yep. I I, I blamed myself, but the locator device where we're finding where the canister with the film is buried in the ice is very similar to the the detonator. So that's confusing. I mean, they're an identical looking box with a single antenna and a single button. Uh, I guess the locator doesn't have the the protector switch over the over the button, but that's the only difference. Oh, so you really, so right. This just seems way too fussy for your your climax of a film. And there's also going to be, and we'll get to this, but there's going to be like a canister. We find a canister of film, then somebody empties the canister and then puts the canister, the empty canister back. But then he also has a canister. And it's like, it's like yep. uh, Coco Chanel. Remove one <laughs> device before leaving. Before yeah. leaving, it's needlessly complicated, but not in a not in a lacare way, but right. more in just a clumsy way. But it, it seemed like they were trying to like maybe set up like a three card Monty thing with which canister is the mm -hmm. film in, and then they do nothing. With yeah, that. well, they did it as a two card Monty, and you can see <laughs> all right. of it's well, done in plain view. 
the uh, the model of the tiger fish went way over. Bed. Apparently, so, uh, we really had to had to economize on miniature Russian aircraft and on. Uh, well, well, my favorite little budget cut does. was the jaunty little uh, CCCP logos on the Russian soldiers <laughs> done in that like Mac curls font. It was so adorable. Uh, that's funny. Uh, yeah, what, what do we think that CCCP stands for? It's definitely something. <laughs> <laughs> the wind dies down, so everybody takes their hats off. Because <laughs> now, apparently, it's a balmy negative yep. 15 degrees, and so you can just take your hat off. This is where the film completely loses Roger Ebert. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, That's he true. was with them. The Russian planes are on their way, we learn. They're 17 minutes away. We get a shot of them approaching that takes... Like 13 minutes of those 17 minutes. That is a long shot of them flying over Arctic terrain. We've got all the people at the base searching for the capsule. Um, They're trying to find the frequency of the capsule because it's been changed. Another flight of rescues are on the way. Why do they keep learning? Why do we keep learning that there are more and more rescues on the way? We've, you know, it's, it's, it seems like that's a limiting reagent in this equation in terms of raising the stakes. Yeah. Jones finds the weather balloon again. This time he realizes it's torn. And using that as a glove, he discovers that there is something hidden in the thing that was in the thing. The ice dozer? What would you call that thing? That bear cat? What is that? Prowler? Something. Scatman Crothers drives one at the end of uh, The Shining, right? Let's call it the Snow snow Cat. I think that's it. Why don't we call it the Snow Cat Man? Yeah. It's (laughs) his Deus Ex Zamboni. (laughs) (laughs) It's in the gas tank. It is a locator, but it's got Russian script, a big Russian label on the front of it. So we know that this is the Russian one because they both had locators. Anyway, it's. um, one of them says D-I-S on the front of it, so it's like Disbearcat. <laughs> what do you need to drive through the ice? Disbearcat, right here. Um, Boris knocks out Jones in a wildly complicated way by throwing a crowbar into his upper chest uh, from around a corner, the way that no one has ever attacked anybody ever. Yeah, anonymously. He had knocked him out anonymously. Yeah. No, Glenn, that's actually the way that that six took out uh, the guard when he was going into the transmission room in the general. Remember, he does the little like round the corner hand wave where just his hand is in frame and the highly trained guard is like a disembodied hand. What the (laughs) hell? A white gloved hand. Um, He's getting hoisted on his own. Can I just interject something? I realized I've been muting the zoom to blow my nose, but that's still going to be on my track that I give to you. (laughs) That's okay, Matt. Totally fine. It's all right. Totally fine. Now that we're going to have phlegm and gross bodily stuff here anyway, I may ask for a little bit of Giger just to you be got it. Which I, I, would never, I would never have done otherwise. More but. glistening. That's, okay. what, that's what this podcast needs. So Boris is a double agent, and there's more Russians on the way, paratroopers this time. Um, Anders. Is he a triple agent? He is, yeah, okay, so he is somebody who went over, he's a Russian who went over to America, but he's actually still working for the Russians, so I think that's double. Is that double? That is, okay. okay. Um, Sorry. God, I'm embarrassed. (laughs) Cut that out. (laughs) He is so charming, uh, you just accept, you just totally assumed he was was on our side. One takes no pleasure in mutilating one's identical twin. But you expect me to do it for you? I expect you to pick up that crowbar and kill me. Anders tries to stop Boris. Boris tries to convince Anders to kill Boris so that it will look like Anders 
was the guy and that Boris fought him. You want them to think that I... Go to hell. I undoubtedly will, Captain. But not before you. Now pick up the crowbar. They say a bull in the ring dies a much better death than a steer in a slaughterhouse. A bull has a chance. Do you want to be killed for a bull, Captain? Or a steer? And then Jones wakes mm-hmm. up and kills Anders because black guy can't get a break in this movie or no. in America but, in 1968. What is his ultimate plan here? Because he wants Anders to hit him and he still thinks he's going to be able to shoot him after being hit. Is that yes. the plan? So he's got to time that just right. Yes. And he lets Anders pick up the crowbar and sort of get it into position. To because he wants it, to get like hit if by that's him, your plan. Right? And yet Anders still does hit him and... Ernest Borgnine doesn't shoot him, yeah. and then they wrestle. So his plan wasn't going to work right. in the first place. I don't know the whole thing. Unless he was counting on on uh, on Jones waking up, which I don't think he was. You're right. That doesn't make any sense. Mm. Um, oh, okay. oh, right. This is a much smaller point than the plot opacity here. But Andrews decides to to take a swing. He, I mean, like he pulls back yeah. and swings. Like, why would you? Yeah. Why would you? Like, you got the crowbar. You're only holding it in front of your body. I mean, you might be able to get to the gun. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You could little nudge, yeah. little nudge little to the nudge gun, to... and then you can do something else. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Rock yeah. Hudson finds what I thought was another detector. It turns out to be a detonator. Um, okay. The second of 16 devices with antennas that we are supposed yeah. to keep track of. <laughs> they find the capsule buried in the ice. I think you Americans call it booby trapped, uh, which is, <laughs> you know, that's not bad. I enjoyed that. Yeah. I mean,. <laughs> Uh, the Russian paratroopers arrived. Boy, they look like those little army men <laughs> that you yeah. would buy at a five and dive. <laughs> boy, oh boy, do they look. They are weightless. Weightless. You, if you get fully articulated actors, you have to give them SAG cards. Oh, I just want a picture about like 18 different crewmen wind, wrapping those up with their parachutes and then just grenade throwing them up into the air at the same time. And then that just dissolves on that backdrop. Yeah. <laughs> This is some kind of uh, psyops thing. We're going to try to pad our numbers by using uh, plastic army men, but keeping them because they are doing that like pendulous (laughs) fall down where you know they're really swinging from side to side like toys do. Like toys do. There was a parlay with a Russian commander where uh, finer points of international law get debated. This is what every Mm. climax needs. Just I think you'll find. (laughs) We basically get the whole of Bridge of Spies. Totally. Last this is the this, this, this is Bridge movie. of Spies. It's yeah. like they took the last five minutes of Ice Station Zebra and made made a, a Tom yeah. Pabst movie out of it. <laughs> yeah, and our guys and, and your guys. It, yep. So, um, there's a rescue with a remote detonator. Boris switches the film after Jones gives him the film to switch, but it doesn't matter if they switch the film because they're eventually going to, like, do they put a fake empty canister into the capsule and then give it the step i thought it was the real capsule but then because because uh, rock hudson knows he's going to blow it up anyway so i thought he gave him the real uh, yeah but did. then what is jones jones is surprised by that because he doesn't see the switch coming I, I i was anyway i thought that was uh rock hudson's little little moment of credibility in jones's eyes he's showing jones oh, that he can no be doubt a sneaky because too. patrick mcguin gives uh, him the most subtle look of approval and it's just so mcguin of like <laughs> This is really me doing this look. <laughs> so, you know, you guys have talked about this 
yeah. on the the opening sequence of Prisoner and how long it is. But when that gas comes through the keyhole and he does that little snap look up like that <laughs> yeah. and that look on his face, <laughs> it makes me yeah. so happy because yeah. it's just so everything, every muscle is tensed, but at the same time, it's unintentionally comic and yep. it's just beautiful. It's a beautiful moment. Yes, it is. It is. And I love any time he can get those flesh-colored eyebrows to be expressive because it's like, it's like it's, <laughs> I know what you're going for. Um, so the standoff breaks out into a firefight or kind of, there's, they just throw gas. Now, if I was uh, a Marine, an Arctic trained Marine with a gun and I hear a big explosion, I'm thinking it's on, but it turns out just to be colored gas to obscure things, right? It's, yeah. Uh, and there's, yeah. okay. So it's, canisters are switched or they're not. There's switched. a real kind of pep rally atmosphere. That's to right. this. Like the, now the color guard is going <laughs> to come do yeah. our halftime That's right. show. Y'all ready for this? So they send the device up to be gotten by a Russian plane, but then the commander detonates it. And that's the end of the film. Um, Patrick McGowan says, Dos vidanya, until I meet, until we meet again. And then we're still yes. doing this in films in 1968. Yes. Until yeah. we it's, meet it's again. Translates, right. It's the same ending uh-huh. as For Your Eyes Only, basically. Is it really? Destroy exactly. the device and then the yes. Russian and the American go, ah, detente. Yes, that's exactly it. The only thing that separates it, that that gives this film a little bit of cynicism that would seem to be fit to the time, because remember, this is 1968. It is the summer of love. It's after the summer of love. There is already some cynicism in institutions creeping in, is we see a teletype media report at the end where uh, the official cover story here is that the uh, British folks at the station were rescued by the cooperation of Americans, British, and Russians. Uh, what a wonderful time to be alive, international allies. That is more cynical than I was expecting this film to get, which has been very, mm. there is the there is the good side and there's the bad side. And this notion of a disingenuous cover story surprised me. Not enough for me to like the, the <laughs> ending. Still, still, again, like the film, don't like that ending. Well, it even kind of gives a, a, a certain nobility to the Russian commander, mm-hmm. right, who Rock Hudson is parlaying with, although he takes care to tell us that his personal nature is a Yeah, I like that. Although I'm under strict orders to avoid violence, if possible. My personal nature is a violent one. Yeah, that was interesting. Like, like I'll be your friend on the battlefield, but don't talk to my wife for references. <laughs> it's just real, like... I'm a gentleman when on the. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. This this wasn't a good film, but it was a good afternoon. Yeah. See, sometimes it's all it takes. It's all that matters. Um, yeah. The reviews of this film were mixed, decidedly mixed. I mean, yes, Ebert hated it, but there were some people who said this was, you know, perfectly. <laughs> said it was a good afternoon. Basically, is what they said. Yeah. The word that kept coming up in several reviews came up in Ebert's, came up in others I read was conventional. This is an mm. entirely conventional film. Now. How much of that do you think is the fact that when this film landed in theaters, we're still going to get things like the Green Berets, which was still saying, you know, yay, yay, uh, uh, rescuing right. Vietnam from from itself. But but I think that's it. I think that that like in you know late 1968, this movie looks dated. Yeah. Already. 
you know, and the, and the fact that they're they're pulling 2001, which is still doing great business, out of these Cinerama venues to to put this film in. 2001, which I I always thought incorrectly was a flop that critics loved. It was the exact opposite. It was a massive box office hit that a lot of critics mm. hated, you know, and didn't really get its critical due until much later. Midnight Cowboy is going to be the next year. I think Easy Rider is you know 69. Like like the the new Hollywood is is happening, and this movie is so 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 old mm. Hollywood. All right, so how should we rate this? Should we do the zero to negative six scale because it is freezing and icy? Or should we go zero to 32? Or should we do Kelvin zero? On the Kelvin scale, yeah, centigrade. I'll defer to you, Chris. I don't know. Give us a a scale. Oh, boy. What do we do instead of one to six, Um, zero to six? Just because it's, you know, cold. But is zero good or bad? Terrible. Zero is, is null, <laughs> null points, as they say. You say right. that like you're you're planning on choosing zero. I'm really not. I'm really not. Because, okay. again, no, uh, if, no. if it was, um, well, no, if David Niven, David Niven would, would bring something, would bring oh, a yeah. kind of level of class. He'd be charming. Uh, James yeah. Mason would be more sinister, I think, than uh, McGowan's here, because okay. McGowan is just sort of weird. Uh, for me, it's going to be uh, a three out of six, and without McGowan, it's a one. Yeah, I got to go three out of six, too. Mm, okay. You know, I'm I'm going to go two out of six. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to huh. dunk it a little bit just because this is one of those films where I can I can think of a superior example of, of each scene. Um, <laughs> and that's probably not fair, if, especially if you're drawing many or most of those examples from subsequent mm-hmm. films. It's, it's entirely yeah. unfair. But um, this is not peak Sturges, no. right? This is not uh, Great Escape no. level Sturges. I was looking, I, I had, you know, I, I loved Once Upon a Time on Hollywood so much. I think I saw that film four times. And uh, I really thought that Cliff Booth, the uh, the Brad Pitt stuntman character, referred to John Sturges by name as the greatest action director ever in that movie. I thought the, the scene when he and... Um, Rick, Leo DiCaprio are, are getting tanked on margaritas at Casa Vega that they were talking about John Sturges. And I went back and looked at that scene and no, it's not there. Like there's a Sturges, like there's the scene from The Great Escape where yeah. we see, you know, Leo DiCaprio in for McQueen. And then we see him telling Timothy Oliphant, uh, basically denying the story that he was, he almost got that role. Uh, and he says, I never had a meeting with Sturges. And, but uh, I don't think Cliff ever says his name. So I had... I don't know. It's a Mandela effect mm. thing. Like I, I had inferred that somehow in my frequent viewings of Once Upon a Time mm. in Hollywood. All right. I want to get your impressions of uh, especially Fallout at some point, Matt, because that was the one that if you're not prepared for it, <laughs> although the show is is preparing <laughs> you for it in small, in big and small ways, right? Uh, you, you, you were, did you go into it? You knew enough about it to know that it didn't end in a tidy fashion, I right? knew, yeah. Well, you guys had kind of talked about it and but i i mean part of the problem is it itself is so strange and then like i said i'd fall asleep halfway through so i don't remember what's a fever dream and what's reality so i i don't know i felt by the end i'd say like maybe halfway through that series i was completing it out of kind of like just dogged determinism i i was not engaged the novelty had worn off i still love the opening segment but then yeah there was the one where he has his doppelganger that i really liked um 
Schizoid man. Yeah. yeah. Schizoid man. Yeah. I mean, really liked is a relative term, but by the yeah, time sure. we're getting into the, oh man, the, yeah, the, it's rough when the episode. What did you think of the girl who was death? Uh, which one was that? That's the, the amusement um, park one where, where he's in, park he's in the Sherlock Holmes yeah. outfit for most yeah. of it, apparently because he's still shooting yeah. Ice Station Zebra. Not, so we want not yeah. much. Like I said, man, I would, uh, oh, it was a uh, rough going there for a while, but it's, I was a, like effective sleep aid. Yeah. <laughs> it surprised me to, to read that when this show was first broadcast in England, apparently in most places it was on at seven thirty in the evening. Cause I thought of this as a, like for me, whenever I was watching it in, you know, cable reruns initially or watching it on Blu-ray now, like it is a late mm. night show, like, because it has that dreamy surreal quality. I like to watch it right before bed. And I like, I just, I can't imagine watching the show while the sun is out. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> All right, Matt. Thank you so much for doing this. This was a dream. This was a pleasure. This was this was uh, a consummation devoutly to be yeah, wished. Yeah, boy. Cut it out with the Hamlet, Glenn. We always get into trouble when we try to cite Hamlet, but I concur. Matt, <laughs> I am so happy and so honored that you would do our little show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure, truly. And uh, I'm glad this podcast exists. This, this is... Uh, I don't know. Keith Richards sitting in with Stillwater. (laughs) With Emmett Otter's Jug Band. Yes. Your podcast makes me having to watch The Prisoner worth it because I can hear it like deconstructed and Uh, debriefed and all that, you know, et cetera, et cetera. (laughs) Yeah. Thank yeah, Matt. Guys. There's, there's, there's no way we would be doing this if you hadn't made James Bonding. I'm no, absolutely. Well, I, I don't think so. Absolutely. No, we didn't invent the rewatch. This is a thing that we both poured over and said this is the reason. And and Chris is very generous to say that I I conceived of it, which is not <laughs> a thing. <laughs> I just said, you know, you know, uh, based on an idea by uh, David Tomlin. <laughs> Well, thank you guys so much. I, truly, I was wanting to be on it and talk with you guys because I love listening to you guys converse about it. So it was a pleasure for me to join. Oh, thank you so much, man. Thank you, pal. You look good, clean shaven. You seem like you'd been sporting a beard more recently. Yeah, you know, I come and go. I don't know what to do with myself these days. <laughs> Who of us does? I wish I could yeah. come and go in facial hair All right, terms. thanks again, pal. Uh, so much fun. <laughs> I'm doing well. <laughs> thanks, guys. Thanks, pal. Bye. Bye. Glenn, I, I think Matt Gorley demonstrated eloquently, concisely, why he is a master of the form to an extent that you and I shall never achieve when nope. he, when he when he called Ice Station Zebra a Saturday lawn mow. I mean, we're gonna Saturday we're gonna, lawn mow with a glass of lemonade. We're gonna we're gonna use that again and again. We're gonna we're gonna. It's now it's our priority. Yeah, I know, and I, I'm gonna have to live with this because I know that that you are going to claim unfairly that so many things that I like are Saturday lawn mows. Yep, I don't have to call them dad movies anymore. I just can call them Saturday lawn mows. Uh huh. Predator. Great Saturday lawnmower. Oy. Oy. <laughs> Oy.
Next week, we are going to finally get into Once Upon a Time. Woo! Yes. Fair that there was a bit of a, a interruption preceding that one because, again, Once Upon a Time famously was, was shot long before it was shown. Mm-hmm. Uh, an interval of more than a year in between its production and, and right. its uh, eventual broadcast as the penultimate episode of The Prisoner. It's going to be a heavy one. It's going to be a great one. It's my favorite episode yeah. ever. I'm preparing myself. I'm, I'm girding my loins. It's it's uh, seven days uh, a, a week. You and I together in a <laughs> black box. One teeny weeny week, my yes, boy. Yes, that has a, what, like a hobby horse, but it's there's also a, like a little kitchenette that has in a prison cell kind of kind of thing. A rental. I mean, at least the butler will be there. Yep. And I think we get it's to wear detachable. some weird sunglasses. <laughs> yes, we get to wear weird sunglasses. Yay. Oh, man. I love this episode so much. All oh. right. Well, prepare yourself, Glenn. Prepare yourselves, listeners. Be seeing you. Be seeing you. Degree Absolute was conceived by Glenn Weldon and is produced by me, Chris Klemick. I wrote our goofy theme song, which was then arranged and beautifully performed by my dear friend Casey Aaron Clark, singing and playing keyboards, and her brother Jonathan Clark on guitar and percussion, with Marcus Newstead on the bass. Check out Casey at CaseyAaronClark.com and or VitalVoiceTraining.com. Jonathan's band Daybringer is on Bandcamp. Write to the Citizens Advice Bureau at a degree absolute at Gmail. You can tweet us at not a number pod. Rate, review, and subscribe to our show on Apple or Stitcher or whatever platform you use to hear it. If you leave us a five-star review with your wildest prisoner take, we will read that take on a future episode. Glenn's latest book is the brand new NPR's podcast startup guide. Create, launch, and grow a podcast on any budget that would explain why Glenn has had a ready answer for any podcast manufacturer question that has presented itself during this long and winding road. He, he hasn't. He really has not. But you should still get the book. It is not lost on me that Glenn is doing this project with me at the same time that this book is being published. That puts a great deal of responsibility on my shoulders. It's a stunning character reference, too, don't you think? It's no degree partial, it's a degree absolute. Did I show you a picture of Lucy Jean? No, you didn't. She's the one for me, all right, that Lucy Jean. She's waiting for me, too. Yeah, she's real pretty. You're a lucky guy, aren't you? Hey, you got a picture of your girl? I guess that leaves someone lucky girl back at home, don't it? <laughs> I got the Borgnine so bad I couldn't get out of bed today.